Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Alex or oh, Sandy for the podcast. It's such an honor to have you. Uh, uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking. Thank you. Uh, I would like to ask you first how you'd like to introduce and how you'd like to define yourself for the audience for the first time listening to you. Um, well, okay. My name's Alex Pendlin, but everybody calls me Sandy, so don't yes. be confused. Uh, I'm a faculty member at MIT. Uh, helped create the Media Lab, which you may have heard of, uh, and now more recently, the Institute for Data Systems and, and Society. Uh, and I do a, a very wide variety of things. I'm on the board of directors for the UN's Sustainable Development Goals data efforts. Um, I've you know, been on advisory boards or boards for AT&T and Google and things like that also to help them principally with sort of data and privacy mm-hmm. types of things. Um, and we've started a, a, a lot of companies over the years. The, the ones yeah. that are most significant deliver healthcare services to well, like 10% of the human race and things yeah. like that. So they've actually grown up to be good. Wonderful. So. And each episode we ask about the childhood because we think that childhood plays a significant role how we think. So I'm curious about your childhood. How how was your childhood was? Was interested in science or tech? Yeah. No, I I was uh, born and grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a very mm-hmm. sort of liberal college town. But I was on the wrong side of the tracks. So mm-hmm. I grew up in an area that. Um, you know, was blue collar at best. There was a lot of drugs and guns and things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, not a lot of focus on school or academics yeah. at all. But I did okay. Uh, and so I got into the University of Michigan, which mm-hmm. is the local, you know, college there. And uh, it didn't do all that well because I just didn't focus on a career. What I did is I took all sorts of courses. Mm. I took, you know, the basic courses for psychology. I took all of the uh, pre-doctoral courses in math. Didn't do very well, but got to see it all. Took, sampled lots and lots of things. Sort of had ADHD. Mm. Um, And really hit my stride when I started working for uh, a uh, laboratory which is called Environmental Research Institute of Michigan. It was a, sort of a, originally a government lab uh, as a programmer. It was mm-hmm. back when, you know, programming was actually fairly rare at, at one yeah. time. Yeah. And I uh, discovered that this research stuff was great for me because you could do all sorts of things. You could think about stuff. You could learn stuff. Yeah. You know, you didn't punch a clock particularly. Didn't yeah. pay real well, but that was okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, as they say, the the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah, know, there's amusing stories along the way, of course. Um, um, I, actually, I'm curious because while I'm reading about you, you're also successful. So, 
I'm curious back then when you are undergrad, I read that you dropped off college and sought to be a truck driver. And it is a change for you at this time. If you can tell us as a young old man at this time, what led you, what well, kind of feeling you had at this time? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when I started college, it was, um, you know, I wasn't quite sure why I was there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just I wasn't that kind of guy. I wasn't really interested in the the curricula or things mm -hmm. like that. And I thought it was interesting stuff, but this idea of taking tests and stuff was no good. And mm -hmm. so I, I dropped out for a year and did essentially manual labor um, and then sort of figured out I had to get back, get that degree because otherwise everyone was going to give me the evil eye. And uh, so I, I started back and suffered through it. And, and then I got this job being a programmer in a mm -hmm. research place. And school became sort of irrelevant. You know, I finished it eventually. Uh, yeah. but, but that was really the place I put my, my effort. It was in, yeah. because I like to actually build things. I want to do stuff. I don't want to take tests and read about the same things that everybody else did. And yeah. I was just not interesting at all. So hands-on. And you see that, uh, for instance, in the media lab, the media lab at MIT is very hands-on place. You, you, you prove theorems. Yes, but you yeah. actually build stuff and, and try to show uh, 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 that it's useful, that it actually mm -hmm. does something that uh, changes yeah. the world for the better. And yeah. that's me. <laughs> okay. I would like to miss this point because I think this is something, uh, yeah, is relatable for people that, yeah, sometimes you hate taking tests, you want to have something that have meaningful, yeah, or maybe impactful as well. So I'm curious for you being, uh, you, since you are a serial entrepreneur and also professor, and has this kind of mentality merging. Do you think now in academia, and that's something we ask all the time about publication, everything is centered around publication. You can't have a meaningful impact unless yeah, you have paper. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I don't, I'm not driven just by publication. I, yeah. I, I have a H factor of 141, which is very high, I guess. Yeah. But that's, almost accidental. Uh, what I'm interested in is impact. Mm. I really want to change the way the world works. So I do lots of different things. I've done biometrics, I've done wearable computing, I've done privacy, I've done laboratories in India and Latin America. I mean, I've done all sorts of things that I was interested in where I thought I could bring something to the table and have impact. Mm. Uh, and if you have impact, if you do something that's really useful, people will cite you. Uh, is the the way I look at it, and that's really what what you care about is actually having an impact out there. Most of academics is is focused on just this little community of academics that talk to each other, and that's comfortable, and that's the way the funding is set up. Um, but it rarely ends up being impactful, and it's why I started the entrepreneurship program in the in the media lab. Is it just you know, I wanted to break out of that academic isolation. I wanted uh, to go out and create things that really worked in the real world. And I wasn't going to rely on, you know, GE or somebody to pick it up and, and do it the right way. Um, and so I began accepting students that had a variety of skills, some of which were people that really wanted to build stuff out in the world. 
And, you know, we guide them through, get a PhD along with the theory guys. And that mixture of theory and practice is, is really important because it keeps the theory guys focused on stuff that matters and it helps the practice guys figure out what is really the state of the art and what they should be doing. That's a great point. So I'm curious when you have this successful academic career, when you start to realize that I can do this and as an entrepreneur, you can have this two wallet and you are comfortable in both of them. Now, why am I asking this question? Because we have all this question of time. Why is the translation of what we do in the lab so challenging? What could be missing pieces? And sometimes robots are so expensive. For example, we have Professor John Leonard, and he said that, yeah, it's so expensive. How we can have cheap robots that also robust and, yeah, can be affordable. So how we started this kind of thoughts to, I can do that, for example, in Google Glass as well. What most people do, right, is yeah. they look at the literature, they go to the conference, and they say, well, I can say something about that. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. Uh, um, unless it's just really something that irritates me completely. Mm. Um, what I'm interested in doing is saying, okay, so here's this whole field like robotics, right? Or, or some piece of robotics. What can I do that will really, you know, change the way the average person works, mm -hmm. right? And so you, you have to have a dialogue with academics and practitioners and regular people. You have to be involved in all of those things. So, for instance, um, almost all my funding comes from companies because they want to hear about, you know, what's happening three to five to ten years out. Um, but I learn what they're struggling with from that mm. conversation. So I know where there's things that could really cut the Gordian knot, as it were. And if you look at the research we do, it's not applied research, it's research that potentiates a lot of applied things. So it's more basic, but mm. it, it's one of those things. It's like, for instance, a couple of years ago, um, actually it's like a decade now, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the notion of privacy and ownership of data became really salient. And I started a discussion at Davos around privacy with industry and government that, that actually was the roots of, of the European privacy law. Uh, yep. One of the things I realized from that is, is you need to have different software architectures for handling data, and you need to have different AI machine learning tools if that data isn't going to be concentrated in one big pool, if it's going to be held in a, in a distributed way. So that the people who, who collect the data never share the data, mm -hmm. but they can share insights. So that's federated learning and the type of architecture, we call it open algorithms. But, you know, it's such a fundamental thing. And you know what's happened? So like just recently, the architecture we developed was adopted by Fidelity and the US banks. And there's this now company called Akoya that uses our architecture. Uh, the EU uh, statistics, the one that does all the statistics for the whole EU, uses our architecture. Um, we just helped the country of Switzerland spin up a blockchain system that uses our things because we're focused on what is the real crying need and what sort of technology intervention will just potentiate lots of things. So it's mm -hmm. not, oh, I can write something that, you know, yeah. gets these guys paper or, you know, this next little citation thing. Yeah. Um, 
it's often very hard to get published when you're doing something that's different than other people. Exactly. Why? And uh, you have to have a certain intestinal fortitude. And then the other thing that I've learned is, um, like, for instance, right now I'm, uh, we're busy writing some uh, uh, articles for law journals. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I can recruit lawyers who are interested in technology and let them be first author. Mm -hmm. They know how to write it, right? And I talk with them to provide ideas and guidance about what the technology and the politics and the source says. Mm -hmm. so you have to be very uh, flexible and not yeah. just a straight line. I'm going to write my papers for this same conference that I always go to. That's an excellent point. I really, yeah, I really appreciate this vision. I think that's something maybe could be an argument that who's responsible for this kind of sort. For you, we don't have many exceptions like you that you connecting from academia and also entrepreneurship and a real world, but where do you see this problems comes from essentially? Because it's still perpetuated and I think in the system that we have this kind of thought, you have to get these papers all the time. So if we want to ask you how we can solve that, how we can have more like this vision? Well, you know, this all comes from tradition, right? Mm -hmm. But it's reinforced by academic promotion committees and, and by funding. So NSF, NIH, all of those um, they try to keep you in your track. You can only propose in areas where you have a record. Your department head looks at you and says, but is that mechanical engineering? And, and, and so that sort of narrowing, that sort of restriction makes it very difficult. Um, and I think the only thing that you can do with that is you can uh, spend some time to educate those people uh, in new possibilities that are high impact. Because at the end of the day, for that, you know, say, academic person, their department, their university is going to be much more successful if it is entrepreneurial, cross-disciplinary. That's where the big uh, uh, high-impact papers come from. Those will be the things that change the rating on the university. Same thing with NIH uh, or NSF. It's, it's not in discipline stuff. It's not the same old stuff. It's it's the cross stuff, the, the novel stuff that's really interesting. And it's a hard argument, um, but but you can make it. And then there's also this this thing that that you can find money outside of the traditional sources. And most universities let you do things on the outside as long as you cover your main duties. Mm -hmm. be very entrepreneurial there if you if you put the energy into yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'm curious to go back again for you have been named as the godfather of wearable. So what is the first wearable technology you built? And what kind of question and thought back then you had in your mind? When well, you so, so it was a period when there was no wireless. Wi-Fi didn't exist. Um, cell phones uh, really didn't exist, um, and uh, computers were these big things that took, you know, 10 amps, and you know, it was really yeah. pretty, you know. But it was clear that they were computers were getting low power and smaller. It was clear that wireless was right on the horizon, and so the obvious thing is people are going to start carrying computers around. They're going to carry it on their body. What is that going to look like? 
It's not going to look like an Excel spreadsheet. You can't do that while you're walking around. And fortunately, I had some uh, visionary students uh, like Dad Starner, Steve Mann, that, that were really interested in this sort of area and were willing to put energy into um, building these things. And, and so was able to recruit a lot of different students to start wearing this stuff. I mean, it was, to be clear, it was a backpack with a big motorcycle battery. Um, but, you know, it let you experiment with things like uh, having uh, location services all the time, having texting all the time, having search all the time, and what would you do with it? Um, and one of the main things we learned uh, uh, was, first of all, wearable computing is not like tabletop computing. It's not about data and spreadsheets and things like that. It has to be about the social situation. Can you get to your meeting on time? Do you know who the thing is? Can you show them stuff? Uh, and so it, it's things that integrate into the human frame, not necessarily into the business frame. It also has to be fashionable. You spend money on your clothes, you're not gonna wear some geeky, stupid thing. Right, just yeah. yeah, a few people will, but it's just not going to happen. So, I started having fashion shows where we'd bring in designers to try to design things. And in fact, the things they design look a lot like, you know, what the iPhone eventually was, what some of the the watches and things are. It was really an interesting thing. And then the other thing that we learned is is that oh my God, there's data about people all the time. You know where they are, you know what they're looking at, you know what they're asking, you know who they're meeting. Wow, that's really different because it, it's hard to sort of grasp now, but there was a time when you just didn't know what people did. Nobody knew, nobody knew about the aggregate. And today you can see where everybody in the whole country is all of the time. And, and that's got its good parts, like in a disaster or you know, to try and help with COVID or something like that. But of course, it's immensely scary also. Yeah, yeah. that's a great also, yeah. And I'm curious about the advances for wearable technology, because I think that's something, when you look now, how we can see the advancement of wearable technology. First thing is, is that it's got to be fashionable. You, you mm -hmm. can't get in the way of the human-to-human -human interface, right? It's got to be something that supports that, not replaces that. Um, and uh, so you have to ask, well, what do you need as you get around? Well, you need to know where the other person is. You need to be able to communicate them. You need information sources. You need to be, to be able to like book a taxi or, yeah. you know, book a table for dinner or whatever on the fly. Um, and our lives have just changed hugely as a consequence of all of that. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and the main types of barriers are things like batteries are maybe the biggest one yeah. right it's like you can't build things if you have to recharge it every hour that's crazy and so you know cell phones today smart watches things like that are right on the hairy edge um they'll get lower power they'll get better um his bandwidth is not such a big deal uh, uh, i people talked about 5g and all that and low latency is very good but you know the the truth is is that's not a, a game changer the game changer mm -hmm is always there context sensitive it knows what you would want at the time and then working out 
the privacy, the psychological things, the social things that go with that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's beginning to happen. You know, yeah. we've got smart watches that do a lot of health. You're seeing the next generation of wearable glasses, you know, primarily for professional activities. But eventually, they'll be everywhere. You see everyone walking around with earphones now. That's all new and different. Yeah. And and not only are they listening to music, they're also getting driving instructions and 37 other things. Uh, and so that's a wearable. Um, yeah. yeah, it's happening. Yeah, yeah. Just sneaking in slowly. But I'm curious about when you have this new idea. I asked this question a couple of years ago, uh, uh, whether I have this idea, is this could be transformed in something like a business or... Yeah, when you have this new idea, what kind of that will be worked out uh, as a business or maybe a product. How do you figure out this could, could have impact or not? Which stage you can decide? Well, the only way you can really figure out whether it will have impact is you have to talk to a lot of people. And you have to talk to people in the area that you're interested in. Like, for instance, um, one of the uh, spin-off companies, Wise Systems, uh, does route planning for delivery trucks. Now, you'd think that would be like, doesn't Google do that? Okay. Uh, sure, but they don't optimize for, you know, what each store owner wants and, you know, what you have to ask for and you go to the back or you go to the front and, you know, right-hand turns are faster than left-hand turns, blah, blah, blah. And um, so, that's what WISE does, and they're very successful. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and the way you get to that is you talk to people who own delivery trucks, Anheuser-Busch, FedEx, people like that, and you see what they do. Yeah. And you see where they have pain points. And, and a lot of times they're not aware of the, they know they have pain, but they're not clear what the underlying problem is, because they're thinking about it in terms of old, non-technology terms. Um, and as a technologist, you can listen to them and say, you know, that's really interesting. And if you see that in several different industries, then that's a really fundamental thing. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing you have to do, of course, is you have to think about, you know, am I going to be happy um, telling my kids that I do X, right? Are they going to be proud of me or are they going to be embarrassed? How about if I tell my friends? And so if you look at the things that we've focused on, it's things like, healthcare, it's things like helping communities, you know, be successful, things like that, uh, much more than ad tech or any of that sort of uh, stuff, which uh, frankly, I would be a little embarrassed to tell my kids about. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'm curious to ask you about maybe the challenges you face in your work or maybe the unsolvable dilemma yet for robot technology. Something is still very challenging for you. And be in, in sector business in general, still missing well the the main thing is is that i see mm -hmm. batteries <laughs> it's mean, really yeah. dumb stuff batteries being socially aware mm -hmm. so crafting the application to fit the social situation um people just don't think about that they're all technologists they think about oh here's a nifty thing right mm -hmm. but but you know most people don't care they care about impressing their boss or getting along with their buddies or, mm -hmm. you know, going on a date. I mean, that's what they care about. 
And you have to ask, well, how's that going to work out? And in most cases, the answer is it's not. <laughs> oh, this is crazy. Um, and there are a few exceptions. Like, for instance, you know, uh, if you can build, you know, head mounted displays that help soldiers not get shot, they'll like that, right? If you can help doctors, you know, have the right information as they're doing surgery, more power to you. But those are really niche problems. Mm -hmm. It's how you start on the broader thing, but it, they're niche problems. Mm -hmm. now, I'm not sure. Um, I, I just I keep saying those two things about the batteries mm -hmm. and the social um, uh, and people nod their heads, but then they don't do it. So... Why? Why do you think there's no much attention or maybe focus? Well, because they're used to the whole tech funding, the tech thing um, doesn't differentiate between wearables and things that are in laptops or pet tablets. Uh, Etc. Right, and so um, there, there's a whole sort of way of thinking about this um, that is oriented towards certain sorts of environments, like robotics. By and large, it's oriented towards um, you know in a warehouse, in an assembly line, on a battlefield, you know where, frankly, the social part is close to irrelevant. I mean, it may be constraining, but it's not like doing elder care or uh, mm. something like that. And uh, thinking about the, the social things requires really new ways of thinking about things. So some of the people I work with are, are really working hard to do this sort of thing. Uh, Cynthia Brazel is really well known for her little robots that you know, work with kids and attempt to be really social. And and while that's really promising, you can see that the problems are really difficult to making that successful. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, what to say, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I've done a lot of study of this sort of stuff of what needs to happen. Like, I'll just give you an example. When we talk, we vary the tone of voice. We do this little dance where I talk, you talk, blah, blah, blah. We anticipate each other. I call that honest signals. There's signaling that has to do with rhythm and pitch and, and things like that. It's not about the words. You can do this in a foreign language, right, that you don't understand. Um, and nobody builds that into the interaction. And until yeah. you do that, any interaction with a robot is going to be awkward because it's not following the signaling rules that humans use with each other. So maybe I'm curious about being a serial entrepreneur. If you can tell us what could you learn about that being in as a serial entrepreneur, what, what you have learned about that? Oh, well, don't be greedy is one thing. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. So, so I, when, when companies come out of my lab, um, you know, at most, I'm listed as an advisor. Uh, you know, if I were being CEO is a full time job, being CTO is a full time job, mm -hmm. you're going to be successful. Don't do it. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. why you have a PhD student who's like young and, and hot and, you know, stuff like that. And you can and you have this advisor relationship. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, you know, continue to be an advisor. And, and when it comes to sort of dividing up equity, you know, you take a couple percent it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, don't try to, to own these things. Because the truth is, is that no matter how good the company is, 
you've got at least a 50-50 failure rate and probably more like four-fifths failure rate. So you have, you, the, the faculty member or the researcher, have to be like a venture capitalist. Venture capitalists invest in companies expecting that only one out of 10 is going to be a real hit. You need to do the same thing. It's, there's a huge amount of uncertainty and chance. Yeah. Now, a young person can, can try this because even though they have like, you know, uh, forfeits against them, mm -hmm. right? Um, they're going to build up their social network, their skills, their reputation. And so a couple of years, the company goes bankrupt. Well, okay, but they really know what they're doing and they can go on to a much more high-end sort of job or, or start another company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You as a faculty member don't have quite that uh, flexibility. You may have yeah. a spouse and kids and things like that. Um, so what you want to do is you want to spread yourself as widely as yeah. possible. Uh, so you want to encourage students to do that and you want to be part of the game because yeah. You know, and what you find is you find you can tell them about sort of foresight, things to look out in the long run, because you get to see the technology coming more than they do. Um, and over time, you develop a, a network where you can introduce them to people who mm -hmm. will help them. And that's really your value. Great. So we have two questions left uh, before ending the interview. Uh, the first one, do you think ego is important for you? Well, ego drives lots of things, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I, it's really nice to be respected and have people ask you things. Um, mm -hmm. But the core is, uh, you know, am I making a difference in the world, right? If I'm making a difference, then people will interact with me differently. Now, mm -hmm. they may say I'm wrong. So this is one of the things about doing stuff that really matters is half the people will hate you. I mean, yeah. really hate you, right? <laughs> and, and, or, or half of them will say, that's completely wrong. That's not how we do things. Yeah. So, but, so, you know, you don't want to be obnoxious. You don't want to alienate people, but you do have to take chances. Yeah. And, um, you know, the worst thing is if people just ignore you, if they think you're not relevant. Yeah. Then, then why are you doing what you're doing? It's just not mattering. Wonderful, wonderful. So thanks so much, uh, Andy, for so thanks so much, Sandy, for this uh, time. And yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank My you. My pleasure.